Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Christopher Paolini has one of the most fascinating publishing stories in in all of publishing today, from writing fantasy and publishing at a young age to building a massive following and audience to now publishing his science fiction epic series. And a look back at returning to his fantasy series that is so beloved by readers. Christopher has been a friend of the Storycraft Cafe since we launched, and today we get to catch up with him, find out what's new, find out about his new series he's writing, and what he plans for the future for going back and forth between fantasy and sci-fi. It's a great conversation, and I think you'll enjoy it. Be sure to visit us at storycraft.cafe for upcoming events that you can join in live. Now on to our show. Welcome in to the Storycraft Cafe. Thanks for joining us today. I am Hank Garner, your host as always. And today joining us again, Christopher Paolini, one of my all-time favorite authors and uh, someone I've had the pleasure of getting to know over the last few years. Christopher has... Um, an amazing year uh, that's unraveling as we as we speak. Um, you've got a brand new book coming out next week, the yeah. second sci-fi epic, um, the follow-up to uh, to Sleep in a Sea of Stars, and it's called Fractal Noise. Mm-hmm. And you kind of surprised all of your um, long-term fantasy fans a while back, and you announced that later this year. Murtaugh, uh, another trip to Allegasia is uh, coming out. Yeah, First I'm, off, how how are you, Christopher? And thank you for joining us. <laughs> I'm good. Thanks for having me back. I, how, how many times have we talked now? This is uh, what, three or four? Three or four. F- four, I think. Four? But, uh, that sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's been it's been quite the year so far, and continues. I think it's going to continue to be quite the year. Uh, so yeah, Murtag, which I say it I say it my way. I don't say it the Irish way, which is <clears throat> annoys a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but see, that's that's how I learned. That's how I came up with all the names and languages in my in the inheritance cycle. Is I mispronounced things to my own satisfaction as I read Love other it. people's books and then just applied those rules to my languages. But I highly recommend readers to do that with my work as well. But um, yeah, Murtag comes out November 7th. And also on November 7th, uh, we are releasing the 20th uh, anniversary edition of Aragon. And it is a fully illustrated uh, book full color with like 50 some paintings and illustrations throughout and it's not just a regular size book it's like a art book it's double yeah. it's double width it's got the, the text is in two columns um siddharth uh is the artist and he did a, he's uh done a bunch of stuff for you know magic the gathering and dungeons and dragons and he really does it, does it feel more like a coffee table book is it yes. like that size yes, oh, yes. I love it. it's it's gorgeous um and siddharth was a fan of the books himself growing up so he really poured his heart and soul into the 
into the work. And um, I'm delighted uh, with the result and can't wait for people to read it. And of course, Murtag especially, since uh, it's there's a lot in that book. There's a lot in that book. I can't wait to get my hands on it and and to to see what you're going to do to my heart this time. <laughs> um, he, he has a, the, the biggest spoiler I can give you, which probably isn't a spoiler, is that poor Murtag has a rough time in this book. Mm, we, which really is to be expected. He no yeah. one no one would be happy if he just had sunshine and roses in this book. Love it. Um, 20th anniversary of yeah. uh, I mean, it's longer than that for me because I started working on Aragon in 1998, uh, which for you and me doesn't seem that long ago, perhaps. Right. But it's it's getting back there now. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a quarter of a century. Looking back on that time now, and you know, we we talked. Um, uh, I, I think one of the first times we talked uh, just about the 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 crazy story that you have of of publishing and um, you know how it all came to be, and now looking back with a twenty year vantage point, and right. and now seeing your writing not only. Um, encompass the the original fantasy series but now branching out to sci-fi mm. when you look back on young christopher who was endeavoring uh to write and publish that first book do, do you look back and uh, does that even feel like you anymore uh, yes and no i mean if i go back and read my old journals or um even chunks of the 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 first book um, there are parts of it that I just don't recognize anymore. It's, it's, I don't like to reread my work like most yeah. authors. It's, it's not, I, I do so much of it during the revision process. By the time the book is published, I'm, I'm sick of it. Right. Um, but also just, you know, the passage of years erases the memory of actually creating some of the work. So sometimes I'll look at it and go, I, I don't even remember writing this. Hey, this isn't half bad. And then I'll look at it at the next paragraph and I go, oh, okay, that, that could use some work. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I I think the biggest thing looking back is, you know, my core values and interests have remained the same. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this is just my own experience or just getting older, but I definitely think that some of the um, sparky energy I had has tamped down over the years. Uh, and, and I think, again, part of that is just dealing with life and also getting older. Yeah. But I'm a lot more steady in terms of persistence and knowing what I want and knowing how to pursue it. Uh, the biggest thing, though, is just <laughs> uh, I had so much anxiety when I started because my family was in a very uncertain position. And what I was trying to do was really uh, unproven. There was no guarantee that it was going to work. And so there was yeah. a lot of anxiety attached to it. And I look back on it and I've seen other people say this with their own lives. And it's like worrying about things does you absolutely no good. You know, all it yeah. does is stress you out, doesn't change the outcome. And <laughs> I wish I could go back and tell my past self, my teenage self <laughs> to just stop worrying so much about this. Uh, of course, the flip side is sometimes that anxiety or concern can spur you to do the work that would be too uncomfortable to do otherwise. So I don't want to say that it's, you know, um, completely useless. You know, negative motivation can be just as powerful, if not more powerful than positive motivation. But you have to channel it in a constructive manner so you don't tear yourself apart. Right. Um, 
most people don't have the publishing story that that you did. You, you begin writing as a teenager, yeah. publish, you know, as a very young adult. Um, most people are coming to writing uh, usually. 20s, 30s, mm-hmm. 40s, sometimes 50s. I think, I think the average average age of a first-time author is like 36. I, I, that sounds right. That, yeah. that sounds about right. Um, and, you know, one thing that, that we tell ourselves when coming to something later in life, and and there's some truth to this, uh, is that, well, you, you needed time to accumulate some life experience because – you know, a, a maturity uh, reflects itself more uh, in a writer than maybe young naivete. Um, you uh, began publishing at a very young age, and you also started a new sci-fi series at an older age. Uh, um, do, do any of does any of that hold true to you? Um, you know, you know what, what do you think yeah, about the I mean, maturity of the writer? The, the biggest disadvantage as a young person writing is your lack of experience. But yeah. the flip side is you can't do anything about that in the moment. Uh, right. So yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about it if you're a young writer, uh, aside from perhaps putting some extra attention into learning the fundamentals, trying to master the tools of the trade, you know, whether, you know, linguistically, as far as writing. And I won't say I'm the greatest master in the world, but I've put a lot of work into improving where from where I started from. And that's that's probably the biggest thing. Also, the more stories you attempt to write and sometimes fail at writing, the more hopefully if you're if you're paying attention and you're getting some good editing advice, you're you're going to get tools that will help you be successful in your future stories. And you can go, okay, I know I tried this in the past and it didn't work, so I'm going to avoid that. Or I know it's a potential issue, so I'm going to put some thought into it before I start writing. All of those things have been very helpful. Um, I think what you perhaps don't have when you're older is the fearless energy of youth. Because, you know, when you're 18, 19, you think you you think you know how the world works. And and maybe right. you do know how the world works, but what you don't have a good grasp on is the scale of things, the the turn of the years, the interaction between the generations, the patterns that evolve, and just the amount of work and time life takes over decades. And the positive side of that is that I think, especially when I was younger, I was a lot more uh, willing to just jump headfirst into a project with no idea how to do it because, you know, what the heck? I'm going to figure it out as I go along. Um, now I'm, I'll still tackle that project, but I'll put a lot more groundwork into it beforehand. And I think that that has been a useful lesson that the more groundwork I put in before I write something, uh, the less trouble I get myself in down the road. Um, uh, a few years ago, before you published uh, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, uh, you had been very vocal about tackling this new project and mm-hmm. that it was it was taking a little while. Um, yeah. you know, whereas, you know, you work on, on the first fantasy book for, you know, a, a number of years and it comes out and then you're under a publishing contract and there are yeah. deadlines and, you know, the writing speeds up and you, you learn as you go and you become more well-equipped and, and all of that good stuff. But then switching gears from fantasy to science fiction, 
it, was that a completely new world? You, you, like in bookstores, we love to to group science fiction and fantasy together. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what that's all about, but we just always have talked about sci-fi and fantasy like they're close cousins. I mean, they um, they are. They are. They they are. I mean, they're they're genres of imagination. One, one could actually make an argument for throwing horror into the air as well. At least at least horror that has a supernatural element. Right. Um, I mean, one could even make an argument for certain techno thrillers really sure. deserving to be in the sci-fi genre as well. But, um, you know, when I think of a science fiction like um, Hyperion or Dune or something where it's it's creating an entirely new setting, entirely new rules to the universe and the culture, that's very much what fantasy will do in many cases. So I, they're similar in that respect. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a big sci-fi reader as well as a fantasy reader. So from from a fan from a as a fan it wasn't yeah. so much of a shift as a writer uh, the biggest shift for me was uh having to shift shift my vocabulary because i'd spent about it over a decade establishing certain patterns that worked really well for fantasy mm-hmm. and then having to just rejigger my own internal um computer in terms of in terms of deciding how to say things and how to present the information to the yeah. readers uh, and I, I really enjoyed that it was a necessary change after the inheritance cycle and then coming back to the world of Aragon what I've been able to do and learned in in the science fiction side of things I think has improved the fantasy writing as well it just gave me additional tools but a the language and then b um, everyone can take a different approach to science fiction I my approach was wanting to have some of the things that are a little more hand wavy, like faster than light travel, but at the same time, not wanting to contradict physics as we know it, which is a tall, tall order. Uh, But the reason for that is because the fractal verse, which encompasses to sleep in a sea of stars and fractal noise and other books that I'm going to write is in the real world. So it's just in the future or the past, but it includes the real world. So I have to, I had to take everything we know now into account in my fictitious setting. Um, and that was, that's part of the reason why it took so long. And I did a ton of research on that. Uh, so, you know, how to have a FTL system that doesn't contradict physics as we know, it doesn't allow for time travel and hasn't been used by any other sci-fi franchise. So that, 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 that one felt like banging my head on a wall for about a year. (laughs) Um, and the the thing is like, it doesn't even appear that much in the stories. You know, it, it's a means of travel. Most of the characters are not sitting there thinking about, you know, the mechanics of this, but the mechanics of it dictate what is and isn't possible. And then that dictates pacing of the story, locations that are available, travel times, all of that. It's a, is it a lot like creating a magic system in, exactly in a fantasy exactly. world? Yeah. I mean, I mean, cause in fantasy magic tells you what is or isn't possible in your world. And in science fiction, the, the technology tells you what is or isn't possible. And actually that's the first thing I'll always look at when I'm creating a new setting, whether it's science fiction or fantasy is okay. I have a story idea. Maybe I even have a general plot before, but before I put any more attention into that side of things, I'll step back and say, what is physically possible in the setting? Is there anything different from physics as we know it? Is there magic? Is there technology that changes things? Because that has to be taken into account. Does your plotting slash note-taking, you know, uh, 
building the scaffolding mm-hmm. of the story uh, before you start writing. Uh, is that different when you write science fiction versus fantasy? No, or, no. And it's not even different for YA. It's all the same process because – I mean, you can tell a good story in a paragraph if you have motivation, if you have a character change, if you have, you know, we are, we are storytelling animals. We naturally tell stories. You know, you can sit around with a bunch of people around a campfire and you will naturally just start telling stories. And you know when a story works or when it doesn't. Uh, so the, the process is exactly the same. And I'll say this, I've gotten a lot more rigorous with that proce- process because every story that I've written that hasn't worked, and this includes the first couple drafts of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, a couple of screenplays I've written, um, even the first draft of Fractal Noise has been because I didn't put the groundwork in to to understand the story on a really deep structural level. Uh, and that's something I did do with the inheritance cycle and it saved my bacon more times than I can count as an, as a new writer, having that, that solid foundation underneath me, you know, it was the hero's journey. It was the traditional, you know, hero's journey and understanding that and knowing how it fit together, uh, really, really helped me. I mean, cause when you're starting out, you're having to do Everything for the first time, characters, right. description, world building, plotting, and not that there's real any real difference between plotting and character, but um, if you can rely on some elements that you know work because they've been proven historically, that can free up your, your mental energy and your uh, time to, to focus on the areas where perhaps you need the greatest improvement. Yeah. Do you... Um when you're creating the the underpinning the firm foundation for your story do you uh take into account all of the um details uh or do you leave room where the creative spark can can ignite in the writing process as it does sometimes and, it's or, funny the amount of room i leave for the creative spark has diminished steadily and really? yet there is always discovery during the course of writing. It's inevitable. Uh, you can't, I can't think of everything prior to writing a book and the physical act of moving your characters around, having them interact, going places. You'll always think of new things, often better things than you did in your outline. That's, that's fine. Um, what I, what I have to have beforehand is a really clear understanding of what it is, I'm actually trying to write what the what the story is, whether that's the type of story or this particular story itself. You know, is it a coming of age story? If it's a coming of age story, how does coming of age apply to my main character? What where are they starting? Where are they ending? Um, you know, since you have the Star Wars posters behind you, I'll use that as an example. If we look at the original Star Wars trilogy, you can feel and articulate Luke Skywalker's journey very easily. You know, it's it's understandable on an instinctual level. Right. If I ask you to articulate Ray's journey in the latest trilogy, it it's it's almost impossible because it wasn't cohesive. You know, there are too many writers, too many fingers in the pot. Right. There isn't a cohesive vision for what her journey from start to finish is. And so you don't feel it as the audience in the way you can with Luke. So that's just, that's what I'm always looking for with an outline. doesn't matter what type of story it is. I mean, like Fractal Noise is a very different type of story than the ones written before. But 
I had a very clear um, idea of what the main character's journey was. And that, that guided everything. And then that guides your interactions with your side characters, you know, because in, in, in a lot of ways, side characters should reflect different aspects of the journey or struggle that your main character is going through. In um, talking about uh, your career as a writer, some people will say that um, if you find that a piece of work that you've created resonates with an audience, that you should stick to what, what your audience is wanting and plow forward and, you know, do that for the rest of your life. And, and, Mm. you know, maybe there's a passion project and when you become successful enough at this, then, you know, do your passion projects on the side. But if you're a fantasy author, you are a fantasy author. Um, (laughs) You had, you know, built this amazing career and then you shifted gears and published this, you know, massive science fiction epic. Um, were, Were you, were you scared that, uh, that, audience wouldn't follow you over or have you found that uh the the diehard fans did follow you and maybe created a, a portion of a new audience so what, what's your experience been with, with uh, there's a couple of parts to that uh i mean the, the the first bit is that i didn't expect to sleep in a sea of stars to do to sell the way aragon did it's a different type of story it never <clears throat> it never had that broad appeal that you know again the coming of age story like harry potter or aragon yeah. or hunger games or twilight has so i never expected it to find the same audience but uh, i was very pleased that it did find the audience it did and especially yeah. for an adult sci-fi it sold very well and very and, well received on on top of that one good reads best sci-fi of the year so i'm, I'm yeah. happy with that um and Fractal Noise, I mean, got star- starred review in Publishers Weekly, a bunch of other great reviews from other places. So, again, I've, I've been very happy with the result, with the response. Um, so there's, there's all that. And I do think that perhaps at first some science fiction readers, especially the adult ones, kind of looked at perhaps what I was doing a little sideways. as like, you know, what, what's he doing? Nah, nah, come on. He wrote that kid's dragon book. Nah. Um, and I think the longer I keep doing this, the more the more people are going to go like, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's serious about this genre. He's he's really giving giving it an honest attempt. And, you know, I'm going to pick that book up and and read it. And, hey, I enjoyed it, maybe. Uh, the other, And then <laughs> this is this is um, and then the other part of the answer comes from in the parlance of our era, um, a place of great privilege, which is that this, in a sense, was a passion project. You know, I didn't need to write it. Um, yeah. You know, I have been very fortunate with the inheritance cycle, so I can just pick and choose my projects as I wish. Uh, but I have a lot of stories I want to tell, and a lot of them are in the world of Aragon, which is why we have a new book <laughs> coming out in November. Yeah. Um, but I have that freedom to basically write what I want. And if the readers follow me, great. And if they don't, I'll probably kick myself in the backside and go, what are you writing? But um, <laughs> I do have that freedom. So that's nice. Um, uh, that that said, I am a storyteller. I want yeah. people to read my books. I'm not, I had a conversation with a very well-known fantasy author who is going to remain unnamed in this conversation, who was lamenting the idea of his books becoming actually more popular than they were because 
then they wouldn't be read by this, you know, the the true fans anymore. Basically, the 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 amateur the, the dabblers would come in and read his work and just ruin the fan base and all this. I was looking at him going, dude, that <laughs> is such an elitist attitude. I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, we write so people will read our stories and hopefully enjoy them. And trying to, you know, firewall them like that. It is just it it didn't I'm a populist in the sense I'm writing books that I hope people will read and I hope as many pi- people as possible will read them. So um, I, you mentioned Harry Potter uh, a little bit ago, and and some of those. Uh, you mentioned several franchises that were uh, kind of in 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 the same time frame, mm-hmm. becoming popular as Aragon did. And uh, my kids were uh, were Harry Potter kids. Uh, that that series was publishing as I had little kids that were growing up, mm-hmm. and I remember. Uh, I, I bought the first Harry Potter book uh, when my son was, my oldest son was uh, two or three, I think. And then mm-hmm. we started reading them together as he grew up. And then the last book came out. He was in high school, at, at, if I remember right. Um, do you do you find fans that, that kind of grew up with the Aragon uh, books yeah. and are now mature readers? And um, how do you feel about your your diehard fan base uh, kind of growing up with you. I mean, uh, I, I owe them everything. And the, the thing is because I started so young, I've grown up with them at the same time. And I'm at the point where I think a lot of re- authors reach this point much later in their lives because they started publishing later in their lives. Yeah. Uh, but I'm at the point where, you know, if, if someone was 16, when Aragon came out, now they're 36. And a lot of times they have, kids of their own and um and they're still reading the books or they're passing the books on to their kids or they're naming their kids after some of the characters so uh, you know when when Murtag was announced i expected a big reaction but i was actually stunned by the size of the reaction and how many people were like this was such a big part of my childhood and this it's like this huge nostalgia hit for a lot of people and of course it's just my life not my own childhood necessarily, but yeah. it was really, it was really amazing to see. And I've, I've noticed this for a long time. I mean, even when inheritance came out, it was already trending in that direction. And now we're uh, what, 12 years since inheritance came out, 11 right. years since inheritance came out. So yeah. And that's, that's why also I would, I want to keep writing in the world of Aragon and not letting such big massive gaps occur uh, yeah. Because I do have a lot of stories there, but I know these readers are there, and it's like I I want to tell these stories for them. When you shift gears from uh, coming off Fractal Noise mm. and then going uh, into Murtag, and and you talked a little bit about um, kind of going back into that world and you know things coming back to you, are there certain things that that you do to help you switch gears from? Uh, you know, Christopher, the sci-fi author to, you know, going back to Allegasia? Well, I let myself write longer sentences with fantasy, which uh, sometimes my editor will complain about, but uh, it's, it's a, it's a different mode of thinking for me. And it's actually not very hard to switch back because I did the fantasy for so long and it's right. such a formative age that I, I mean, there quite literally is probably, you know, physical changes in my brain from thinking in these patterns for so long. So yeah. it's it's pretty easy to just slip slip it on like an old glove or an old shoe. But um, in some ways, 
also I have a way of visual visualizing it that gets me in the mood, which is when I think of the sci-fi, so I'm very, very visual. I always think of almost like an empty starship spaceship corridor with artificial gravity, of course, we'll go with artificial gravity, but sure. with, with like bare metal grating on the floor and the light in the corridor is this sort of artificial blue light that you, you see, you see this sort of blue light in a lot of James Cameron's films. Yes. Uh, and it just, for whatever reason, and, and I kind of hear, you know, the kind of the background noise of the spaceship and that just instantly puts me there. Um, that's always, kind of the mood I want to be in when I'm writing my sci-fi. And for the fantasy, uh, I mean, I, I look outside. I live in the Beartooth Mountains here in Montana. So it's it's every day. You, you live in a fantasy world. Yeah, pretty much. Just, pretty much. Just it looks like Lord of the Rings and... outside the window. It's amazing. Um, let, let's talk about Fractal Noise for a minute, because uh, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars was this amazing sci-fi epic um you know, in, in scope and size, um, fractal noise, same world, but we wound the clock back, um, mm -hmm. a couple of decades. Um, what was the, you know, after you finished the first book and, and I remember you telling me, you know, uh, a year or two ago, whenever it was that, you know, I have more stories in this world that I want to tell is, you know, just kind of, as soon as I know that people want more of these stories, I, yeah. I have more to tell. Um, Tell me how Fractal Noise came about and why you decided to turn the clock back and tell this portion of the story. Well, as, as you kind of mentioned with Inheritance Cycle, once the world was established and the first book was out, the second book came out comes out a lot faster Yeah, because the world building is, is established. Uh, but I actually wrote Fractal Noise all the way back in 2013. So it was the first larger project I wrote after Inheritance. And I wanted to write something that was more adult, a little more serious, um, and in this, this new setting. So I wrote the first draft of Fractal Noise, and it didn't really work. It didn't really work. And I was, I was looking at it and trying to decide what to do with it. And I decided like that I, I knew I could fix it. I knew, I knew what revisions to make to get it to where I wanted. Uh, but I didn't want to put all that effort into it at that point. And I didn't want ultimately fractal noise to be the first introduction to the fractal verse for, for the readers. So I put it aside. I went and worked on to sleep in a sea of stars, which took way longer than expected. And then after that was out of my hair, I read, sat down and I reread Fractal Noise, and I could see where I'd sort of gone off the rails. And uh, the time off really did me some good. The, the changes and revisions I made are not things I could have written, I think, back in 2013. So uh, it is a prequel. It takes place 23 years before To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, but it's a pretty much a standalone novel. You don't need to read To Sleep to read Fractal Noise and vice versa. Uh, if you're just getting into the Fractal Verse, um, I might recommend To Sleep first, but I've also seen some early readers who are saying uh, Fractal Noise is a better introduction. It's it's shorter. Uh, it's about 300 pages. It's, um, it's hard for me to say what people think of it because it's actually yeah. been really split. Some people say it's a fast paced, thrilling ride. And the next person will say, oh man, it just dragged and dragged. <laughs> so everyone's having a very individual reaction to it. But those who like the book seem to really, really like it, which I'm happy to see. Uh, and it 
it tells the story of this uh, survey team that's in a in a solar system that's being surveyed for potential colonization, and they end up detecting on uh, one of the rocky planets in the system. They end up detecting or discovering this giant hole on the planet. It's like fifty kilometers across. And it's just like a perfect hole. And for various reasons that I won't go into, uh, landing like a like a drone or something uh, is is impractical. So they end up landing a couple of uh, the crew members on foot to go check this thing out. And the book is the story of that expedition. And of course, uh, since we wouldn't have a story otherwise, things do not go particularly well for them. Of course, of course. You got a red shirt, some people. It's, That's right. Yeah. And I and I did about six pieces of art for the book as well, which are in both the ebook and the hardcover. So that was a lot nice. of fun. Um I didn't realize that fractal noise uh that you had come up with this concept before to sleep. Um I find that fascinating um for a couple of reasons. One, because now we we look at this as a follow up, a follow up to the first book, yet a prequel, um, meaning um, and, and correct me if th- there's just some assumptions that I'm making that that in your mind, the story comes out in a certain order and you tell the story of to sleep uh and then this book, so there's a, a pattern of the way some of the the world building is unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that both are out, if if someone has not read any of them and they say, well, I'll read the prequel first, um, yeah. you know, uh, and then it, it's just a straight progression. But when you write it that way, it's not necessarily a straight progression. No. You told this story first and then you went back and told this one. Are there things that unfold and unravel in the way you publish them that uh, is going to be a different experience if you read them chronologically? Uh, Well, I mean, for one, the world building I did into sleep retroactively changed things in, in fractal noise because to sleep is such a bigger book. By the time I did all the work on that, I had a much deeper understanding of the setting. And so then that got applied to fractal noise and, necessitated a certain number of changes. Uh, I mean, there's always been this argument of writing, you know, publishing order versus actual in-world chronological order. I, I know I've seen, um, which kind of shocked me that, that uh, there are box sets of the Chronicles of Narnia, which are ordered chronologically in world, which is absolutely the wrong way to read those stories, by the way. 1,000%. Everyone should know this. You need to read them in the published order, yes. um, which starts with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course. Yes. So uh, I don't know. Uh, it's it's really hard for me to say because Fractal Noise is so different from To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. To Sleep in a Sea of Stars is it's a space opera. It's a big, sprawling epic with a lot of moving pieces and a lot of characters. And Fractal Noise is much more like a bottle drama. It's... Um, more like an account of one of those uh, dire expeditions to the Antarctic that right. folks went through. Um, personally, I see the connection very clearly because I write about the same sort of set of obsessions in all of my stories. So I can I can point to this and say, it's basically the same story if you look at it from a certain angle, but whether or not the readers will feel that is, is another question. Um, but this is what I hope to do with the Fractalverse going forward. It's like there are a lot of different types of story. 
that I'm going to be fitting into the Fractalverse. Like one of the next ones I want to write is actually a YA steampunk set on Earth in the Fractalverse. So people are going to go, well, I just read To Sleep and I read Fractal Noise, which was really intense. And now I've got a YA steampunk like, (laughs) you know, or their kid reads might read that YA steampunk and go, I want to read more in this world. And then uh, we'll see how that works out. But (laughs) um, there what is not apparent, I think, to the readers right now is actually I'm playing a very long game, which means I have to write fast in order to finish the game. But. Uh, there's actually a very large thing going on in the fractal verse that is not become apparent to the readers yet. So I have to, I have to keep writing. How do you approach uh, writing YA versus uh, like the adult science fiction? Are there certain, um, are there certain rules that you abide by for one or the other? Or is it just getting, uh, shifting your mindset? Is it keeping the reader in mind? What what differentiates these two audiences for you as the writer? For, for me, it's just keeping in mind what feels appropriate for who might be reading this. So, uh, you know, if I would feel comfortable telling the story to a nine-year-old, as an example, or older, it depends on what age range, yeah. whether you're going for, you know, middle grade or teenager. But basically, would I, would I feel comfortable with you know, a kid of my own of that age reading this story. That's, that's really what guides it. Uh, I don't worry too much about, um, you know, the emotions being too serious or too mature because, you know, kids have strong emotions and it's okay to acknowledge them, but, you know, definitely I wouldn't engage in profanity or, you know, sexual content um, if it's aiming younger. So, but that doesn't seem to impact the, you know, the power of a story that you can tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think differently um, in, in terms of story structure when you're writing no, fantasy no. versus sci-fi, or is it just a difference in window dressing? Just a difference in window dressing. I mean, when you study structure enough, you start looking at um, the characters almost like symbols. Like they represent something that the writer is doing and it almost doesn't matter where the story is set or what the dressing is. I mean, it's been said about star Wars, for example, you could swap out the lightsabers for regular swords and the starships for horses. And, you know, uh, you need, you need a few other little changes to make it actually work, but you know, Alderaan is a castle and they're going to burn the castle down with their new siege weapon. There you go. Um, so the trappings almost don't matter. And that's that's why archetypal stories last so long, because you can slap a new coat of window, you know, paint on them, and yet fundamentally they're still the same. Uh yeah, I think I think that's pretty much where I've I've come down to it. Yeah. Um what have you seen change in the publishing industry over the last 20 years? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I mean, for one, self-publishing is much, much bigger. And the options right. for self-publishing are, you know, And And myriad. you began as a self-published author. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so when I started, e- e-books In a very different world, but yeah. Yeah, e- e-books weren't a thing. There was no iPad. There was no Kindle. There was no Nook. So self-publishing really meant physical copies. Uh, Amazon was around, but even then, Amazon shipped you a physical copy. And there were yeah. people who were experimenting with like HTML, PDF books, but there were there was no, 
you know, standard format or reader that people could use. I mean, there were no smart smartphones. It's not like you could just read on a smartphone. So right. that's been a huge change. You know, the Amazon uh, self-published marketplace has just exploded over the past number of years. Uh, social media, of course, for promotion. I mean, like what we're doing now. And then just in general, the importance of maintaining social media, interacting with fans. Uh, I mean, I got into Twitter the, the day of the book launch for Inheritance in 2011, just when social media was starting to happen, starting to take off. And the difference between then and now, for both for individual authors and then also for the publishers, is staggering. So I haven't launched a big book with Random House since 2011, but I did have my collection of short stories, The Fork, The Witch, and The Worm, which came out right. end of 2018, beginning of 2019. And Random House did a great job with that. And But we all had certain expectations for it, which were not as large as a major entry in the, in the world of Aragon. Um, and the book did just about exactly what we hoped it would do. But the difference even from then to now and how Random House approaches social media marketing it's night and day. I mean, they are, well, I'm not sure how much they'd like me to say, because some of it may be proprietary, but they have an entire division devoted to it. And they are deeply engaged in, you know, how people are looking and interacting at uh, advertising posts, um, hashtags, all sorts of stuff. So that's, that is a, that is a big change. And I know they don't do that perhaps for every book. Um, they have limited resources, of course, so they have to pick and choose which books they're really going to focus on. But that's a big one. Um, and another thing is, despite all the dire predictions for the book industry over the years, because of the internet, because of smartphones, more people are reading now than any, ever before. And the publishing industry just keeps turning profits. Yeah. And more and more people are getting published as authors. So uh, it's been a good run in terms of publishing. Um yeah. One thing that that I think took a lot of people by surprise was how COVID uh, affected um, reading in general and mm -hmm. and book sales because you could still order books online, get them, yeah. you know, shipped to your uh, to your front door, and a lot of people um, had a great publishing experience during COVID. Yeah. And it was obviously different in book tours and all of that stuff was was different. But have you noticed um, how that little blip on our cultural radar has shifted things. I definitely saw that with um, a number of books that got published that, that sold very well during the pandemic. I think from in terms of my experience, cause I launched to sleep um, right at the end of yeah. 2020. So first year of the pandemic. Um, I think for me, it definitely hurt how the book did because I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic here because on one hand, yeah. the book did very well by any metric, you know, I, I, but I'm comparing it to my own past history. Of course. So I which know is what, all you can compare, which is all I can compare it to. So I know yeah. what's possible. And I know that although digital events uh, can be incredibly efficient, you know, you can do something like this and get tens of thousands of views, if not more without having to leave your home. Uh, there is a difference between that and actually doing an in-person event where people come and buy books and you get a different group of people every yeah. single stop, which you might not get with a digital event. You might get the same people who are just kind of watching your content in general. So True. Um, True. I, I know that based off my past experience that not touring in person for To Sleep really did hurt it. And, you know, tour, to their credit, had this amazing tour and media blitz all lined up. And then as COVID gathered steam, we all had to shift gears and 
and that was the other thing is I was one of the, f- you know, first big books there that launched when the publisher was still trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to do this without, uh, well, I shouldn't say one of the first, there were a couple other big books as well. So, um, but you know, how do we do this without an in-person tour? I mean, now it's nice because the, the framework is in place to do both types, you know? Um, so there's a lot more of the virtual events like we're doing now. And then, uh, I mean, I fly out on Monday to start my tour for fractal noise on Tuesday. Wow. When will the, uh, promotion begin for Murtag? Uh, well, I mean, it's already in stores now. Uh, I know they have stuff in Barnes and Noble and elsewhere promoting the book. Um, so it's just going to gather steam throughout the year. And then the tour for Murtag, you know, probably will start November 7th and I'll be touring the North America. I think I'll, I may, I may be going up to Canada and then I'll also be going over to Europe and possibly elsewhere, uh, maybe December, January. So busy year. Speaking of in-person events, I know that you began, um, uh, doing like in school events and you dressed up in character, Um, you know, when, when, uh, when Aragon first came out, at what point did you realize, Oh crap, I can't do that anymore. Like this has become an entire thing that, that had to be weird when, when that gear shifted. Well, I don't actually, that never really happened because I've still done school events here and there. And, once Random House picked up Aragon and then they sent me out on tour, which is something they had never done for a first time. They just didn't do for first time yeah. authors back then. Um, and then people, people were showing up. Um, I mean, and the crowds just got bigger and bigger over the course to the point where they sent me for a second tour for Aragon. So they did, we did like a week and a half, I want to say something like that. And then they sent me for a second tour, like, in a couple of months, which again, they had never done before sending an author out for a second tour. And that's when we really knew, you know, like we, we've got something here. And then when I toured for eldest, the second book, that was when, uh, the movie was about to come out. It was ramping up. I was filming. I think the movie was actually filming in Budapest at the time. And, uh, the crowds were insane. I mean, we're talking like <laughs> sometimes four to 6,000 people in a bookstore. I mean, it like I'd be in a Borders or Barnes and Noble and it's just a sea of heads. Like I couldn't even, I had to stand on tables to like give my presentations. And, and the, the funny thing is for me too, is, I mean, a, that really skews your idea of what's normal, right? Of course. Especially course. as a teenager, a young person, but, yeah. um, all of that happened before social media you know, all the way up to inheritance. So I have done, I mean, I've done national television. I've done all of these huge events and like none of it's on camera. None of, or well, some of the national stuff, but like none of, none of the events, there's none of it's on social media. So it's like, it's, I when to sleep came out and I started doing uh, these virtual events and putting up YouTube stuff. And it was crazy to me how many comments there were from people saying like, I've never seen Christopher. <laughs> I like, I had no idea what he was. Yeah, I didn't know he was still publishing books. And, I, and it was just, there was this complete disconnect between like, the, the social media generation, if you will. And, and everyone from my generation that I had been touring with. Um, so that's, that's also been why my team and I have really focused more on social media and just getting more content out there. That's so wild. 
Well, Fractal Noise comes out next week. Uh, I'm excited for for this book to get out into everyone's hands. I know, obviously, you are too, yeah. uh, Christopher. And then Murtag coming out this fall. Um, what are you working on right now between <laughs> tour and and all that? Um, I am deeply up against the wall with copy editing for Murtag um, <clears throat> because of various life pressures and finishing fractal noise at the same time I was editing Murtag, um, things have gotten a little crammed. So I'm actually going to be editing <laughs> while on book tour for fractal noise. So that's, oh, yeah. that's what I'm working on after, after Murtag is out of my hair, I'm going to go back to the fractal, except the, the fractal verse. And, uh, I have a couple of, um, strong projects that I'm, I'm passionate about that I want to write next. So perhaps that YA steam <clears throat> steampunk that I mentioned, and then, um, then it's going to be back to the world of Aragon. And I'm just going to, uh, my plan is just to bounce back and forth for the rest and of my life. If I can, <laughs> that's what I was going to uh, ask you is, is Murtag going to be our last trip there? But no, I'm so happy to hear no. that. And actually to, so, so for people who don't know, Murtag is a direct line, full size sequel to the inheritance cycle. You know, Aragon's not the main character, but, uh, if you've enjoyed the inheritance cycle, you know, this is, this is, this is, you'll, you'll want to read this. Uh, and it is, <clears throat> people have said, I've been asking me like, is it the first book in a new series? You know, what, what, what are you doing? And I want to let people read the book before I completely answer that. But it is the first mm. stepping stone in a long line of stepping stones that uh, I'm laying out. So uh, my goal well, is just, yeah. That's the great benefit of building a world as, as lush and as, um, detailed and inviting as you did with Alagazia, but because you can then bring in other characters and, yeah. and tell those stories. And that's a, a testament to how well you did and, yeah. and creating well, and a place people want to go. I've been teasing the long fabled book five in, in the world <laughs> of Aragon for a long time. And I, I have to be honest, Murtag is not book five. <clears throat> it is, I, I was starting to work on book five and work, you know, doing doing the foundational work we were, we've been talking. I've yeah. been talking about, and I realized that too much had to be established before I got into book five. So book five is now book six. So Murtag is uh, I don't want to say it's an unplanned book, but it's it's a new. I, I I squished I pushed open some space for for Murtag to to fit in. I love it. I love it. Fractal Noise, go grab it next week. Go ahead and pre-order Murtag or, you know. Yeah. And the illustrated edition. Illu just just products coming out everywhere. Right. Just just get them all, you know. Just get them all. Good, you know, Take out a new uh, mortgage. Just just have, a, just have a Paulini shelf. Uh, you know, a shelf room. Yeah. Uh, Christopher, always uh, a pleasure getting to catch up. Um, okay. We're going to send everyone to pick up their copies of Fractal Noise and Murtag. Uh, thank you, as always, for taking time to come on the show. My pleasure. We'll have to do it again soon. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. 
Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.